Let us now turn for our scripture reading and our text this morning to the book of Zechariah. And we're reading from chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. Therefore love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord, and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord proclaims his way of spiritual restoration. Uh, that uh, is the theme that we've been considering from uh, the heart of this prophecy, this book of hope. And uh, that theme especially is emphasized in uh, chapters 7 and 8, where we are given that, that map, that way of spiritual restoration that the Lord so graciously gives to his people. Uh, beginning, as we saw, with a repentance from a kind of selfish formalism that was evident in the question that was posed, uh, shall we continue the fast, as we read in chapter uh, 7? Shall we continue uh, to weep in the fifth month and fast, as I have done for, for so many years? And then the next verse makes reference to the fast of the fifth and the seventh uh, months as well. There were these periodic fastings that uh, the people of God observed during the captivity, commemorating crucial events in the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, each of those months has significance in connection with specific events. Uh, the the siege of Babylon, the destruction of of uh, Jerusalem, even the the murder, the assassination of of Gedaliah, whom. Uh, was set over the people for a time. These were uh, events that were commemorated with humiliation and fasting before God. Uh, but those observances had become a matter of formality, uh, and the Lord rebukes them for that and calls them to repent from that kind of selfish formalism. But secondly, we saw last time how this way of restoration involves the return of God's covenant mercies especially in chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, we have the assurance and the description of God's covenant mercies and the resulting blessings that he will bring to his restored people. And then we come to our text this morning, and we see that this restoration results uh, in, a, in a powerful impact upon the people of God. And there are two effects of this that we're going to look at this morning, both of which are always true. Wherever there is true spiritual life, wherever there is true spiritual uh, renewal, we see these effects. 
First of all, there is the effect upon people's own lives in the form of renewed joy and renewed zeal to seek the Lord and to pray to Him. And then secondly, there is the effect that this often has upon others. People uh, notice, and by God's grace, some may be moved themselves to seek God uh, for themselves. And both of these things are described in our text as a result of Israel's restoration to uh, by God's grace. God's restored people become a light to the nations. That's our theme from uh, these verses. And we'll see that this happens in three ways. Uh, beginning with a restoration of joy and gladness. Verse 19 is really the Lord's answer to that question that was raised about fasting, at least an answer in the most direct and explicit way, where the word of the Lord of hosts came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. You see, when God's people came to understand that piety is not simply a matter of outward observance of certain uh, rituals or regulations. And when they rather experience God's amazing grace, and when their worship is properly grounded in gratitude for such mercy, well then, fasting is turned to feasting, and sorrow is turned to joy and gladness. Joy. Joy was intended by God from the very beginning to always be a dominant, prominent feature of Israel's worship. You could turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and see how that is uh, emphasized in connection with the feast that Israel was called to observe. In verse uh, 7 we read, of uh, the Israelites going to the tabernacle where God had placed his name. There you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. When you come to verse 12, you have the same thing, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates. Then you come again to verse 18, and uh, it says again there that uh, you must eat your sacrifices before the Lord in the place that he chooses, and you and your son and daughter, your male servants and female servants who is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you put your... Three times in, in Deuteronomy 12, you can go to Deuteronomy 16 in connection with the the observance of the Passover, and there again you'll find three times this uh, mention of the importance of rejoicing before God in terms of Israel's worship. How often uh, does the call to worship that we hear from the Psalms every Lord's Day give prominence to this matter of joy? Shout with joy to the Lord, we heard at the outset of this worship service. We turn to such uh, 
Psalms as Psalm 95, a passage that's often used as a call to worship. How does it begin? Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Psalm 97, verse 11 and 12. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Psalm 98, verses 3 and 4. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Bring forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Now these are a few instances, and I could multiply them. I could give other examples in which we hear uh, the stress uh, put upon joy and rejoicing in God's presence. A joy that is to be expressed, indeed, with loud shouts, with singing. A joy that is to be felt. And often there's a close relationship uh, between these things. And that relationship is not what we might necessarily expect. We might think that the, the feelings of joy give rise to the expressions of joy. And that's true, and it ought to be the case. But it's also true that determined, the determined, obedient, Believing expression of joy arouses feelings of joy. God has appointed singing in which we commemorate his wondrous works in order to stir our hearts, in order to make us feel joyful as we focus upon him. And so that's a good question for us this morning. And that is, do we really appreciate? Do I appreciate? Do you appreciate How important such joy is in worshiping God and bringing honor and glory to Him. How important is that in honoring His day of rest and worship? A day which the Heidelberg Catechism refers to as a festive day of rest. In other words, the Lord's Day is a feast day, spiritually. And perhaps literally. But it's not a day of fasting. It's not a day that is a weariness, a burden, but a day of joy. Do we believe that? Do we communicate that uh, to others, to our children? Very important, isn't it? How can we communicate to our children that we regard the Lord's Day and the worship of God as a great privilege? and a joyful privilege. Well, there are a few things that are pretty basic and obvious. For one thing, we come to church when we can. For another thing, we are engaged in the worship of God. We participate in the singing. We participate in every aspect of worship with attention and with intention. Perhaps our children hear us pray at the breakfast table or on other occasions in which we thank God for the day of rest and worship. And we ask for his special blessing. And we communicate that we treasure this day of rest and worship and that it is a joy to gather with God's people. Restoration means restored joy and gladness in worship, redeeming, restoring grace 
produces joy. We have this psalm that, that describes Israel's uh, liberation from Babylon. Psalm 26, when it says, When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, you notice the testimony, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Now, that's a prophetic description of uh, deliverance and the resulting joy that God would grant to his people. Now, this doesn't mean that, that fasting is wrong. It wasn't wrong for Israel. It would not be subsequently wrong for believers uh, until the time of Christ. And it's not wrong for New Testament believers. In fact, there are times when it is appropriate uh, to fast. And there is a time to mourn. And there is sorrow. And there is weeping yet in the Christian life. In fact, we might even uh, note that uh, there is an idealistic note in this text, as if to describe a situation in which all fasting will be forever removed and every tear will be wiped from our eyes. It's like this passage stretches forward to that great day. But in the meantime, yes, there is sorrow and suffering in the Christian life. And yet we must never settle for joyless worship or joyless living, or little joy in our worship, or little joy in our living. Believers are not always joyful, but believers are convinced. They are convinced that their true and only joy is ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have tasted that the Lord is good. And they are on this quest for the kind of joy that is not selfish, but a joy that glorifies God by magnifying the reality of his mercy and grace. And believers are convinced that they have good reason to rejoice. That's one reason why, in a sense, it's an added burden to Christians to be sorrowful. Because they know they have so many reasons to rejoice, and they just don't feel it. But they're convinced yet yeah, that there is a there is a foundation for deep real happiness in the Lord Jesus Christ and we can also underestimate how important this is for our christian testimony that's another reason by the way for the importance of joy in the christian life in 1 peter 3 we we have this exhortation to uh, believers that we are always to be ready to give an answer to those who ask a reason for the hope that is in us. Well, who's going to ask us the reason for our hope if all we communicate to others is a kind of negativity? If all we communicate to others is a kind of pessimism and a kind of gloominess in our outlook upon life? No, hope becomes evident. Yes, hope sometimes becomes evident in suffering. In fact, in the context there, that's what you, uh, that what, that's what you see, that, that, uh, Christians are persecuted and mistreated, but it's in that context they are to exhibit hope. And often hope is exhibited in the midst of trying circumstances. 
and hardships where others can yet observe that there is a kind of peace, a kind of stability, a kind of perseverance under pressure and difficulty that should make them wonder what keeps you going. Where do you find comfort in your situation? Joy provides that basis for a kind of calmness and quiet stability. The joy of the Lord is your strength, is what Nehemiah would remind these same people. Now, if you are without joy before the Lord, well, there is a sympathetic word for you in Scripture. As a believer, in fact, Peter himself also acknowledges that. When he describes this great salvation that we have in Christ, he says, in which you greatly rejoice. But then he adds, though now, if necessary, you are in heaviness because of manifold temptations and trials. Christians don't always feel joyful. They face testings and hardships, which can feel crushing and overwhelming, extremely difficult. There are tears, there is sorrow, but it's important to know, know that that also is included in God's gracious and wise plan in which he deepens our faith and sanctifies our lives through testing and through trial. And that ought to be, that realization ought to be also part of our life song. Spurgeon said, uh, that suffering is not a contradiction, addiction to joy. In a way, suffering are the base notes in our life song. But it's a life in which there indeed is a foundation for deep happiness in God. Well, it may be that I'm speaking this morning to someone who honestly can say that they have no joy before God. No joy that they are clearly able to identify according to Scripture as being distinctly Christian. Joy before God and His salvation. Well, there's also a sympathetic word for you if that's the case. If you have found that the kinds of pleasures that you look forward to always turn to dust, if you find that your expectation and your hopes from a change of circumstance or from people always meets with disappointment, and as you grow in years, you grow in a kind of bleakness, a kind of pessimism to your outlook in life, well, you ought to hear the voice of God in this too. Because God is smashing your idols. He's showing you in your own experience that there is no true life apart from God. That there is no deep happiness and contentment. Oh, there may be joys and pleasures temporarily, but they leave people jaded. And God wants you to trace all your misery to its root cause. And that is your sin before Him. The fact that you're alienated from Him. The fact that you do not seek Him. You do not pray to Him. You do not seek your life in Him. And the voice of God also in this discovery of misery that is grounded in your sin ought to lead you to cry out to Him for mercy and for grace. You know that conversion really is a joyful thing. Yes, turning to God involves the awakening of real joy. It involves sorrow for sin, a heartfelt sorrow that we have grieved God. 
That's the dying of the old man. That's the negative side of conversion. What's the positive side? A wholehearted joy in God, in Christ, and with love and delight to turn to Him, to walk according to His will. That's the kind of joy that God gives His people. That's the kind of joy that He promises in our text. It's a joy that's combined, isn't it? You read it in the final part of uh, of this verse. In the exhortation that follows this assurance of joy, it says, therefore, love truth and peace. Love the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Love the peace of reconciliation. Love to walk in peace with others. That's part of the pathway of joy in God. The joy that God restores in grace. In Psalm 90, we pray that God's work would appear to His servants and His glory to their children. And that the glory of God the beauty of God might be seen upon us. That's what we want. That's what God gives in His grace. Restore joy and gladness. And then secondly, eagerness to seek and pray to the Lord. In verse 20 through 22, again, we'll read it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. These verses describe people, many, from cities, from nations, from peoples, And we are to see God's work here. What is described here is a kind of powerful compulsion that came over them. And two words then describe their aim and their activity. To seek the Lord and to pray to Him. To pray to the Lord and to seek Him. Both of these words are used. Both of them are repeated in reverse order to describe this response. Now, this is not a kind of uh, religious self-expression that is acceptable in our world today. This is not a kind of uh, personal spirituality that people will sometimes claim when you talk to them about matters of faith and they say, well, I'm spiritual. And that means they take an interest in things other than material uh, possessions. But beyond that, it could mean just about anything they want it to mean. No, we're not talking about that kind of general interest in spiritual things. What is described here is a quest. And it's a quest with a laser-like focus upon the living God. To seek Him. To seek to know Him. To seek His favor. To seek His will. And to pray to Him. To pray for grace and mercy and help from this living and true God. The focus in this description is upon God. And it's upon the place of God's presence. 
It's upon the place of God's self-revelation. In that context where? In Jerusalem. They go to the house of God. They don't go within. They don't retreat within themselves and try to find some meaning inside them. They don't go to the internet and do a search according to their own interests and desires and inclinations. No, they go to where God has revealed himself. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 2 that's described here, which is many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see, God's purpose in calling of Israel is realized precisely in this way. Uh, God's calling of Israel to be his people was never simply centered upon them. It was for the world. God called Abraham so that in him and in his seed, all the nations of the earth should be blessed. And from the very beginning, that was Israel's calling, to live in such a way as to lead the nations to inquire about this people that have such righteous laws that reflect a uniqueness in their worship of God. From them... And from this center, the knowledge of God in Christ goes out to all people. And that's fulfilled, especially beginning at Pentecost, when a spirit-filled church is equipped to what? To go make disciples of all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And that's what happened. And that's what's still happening, although the center is no longer Jerusalem, but the center is God's dwelling among his people in God's house where God makes himself known among his people so that the truth from them might radiate out in their lives. This eagerness really describes spiritual life. And wherever God's truth and grace enter the lives of people, they seek the Lord and they pray to him. There are a number of features to this kind of spiritual renewal, even as evident in in this passage before us. For one thing, there is a care for others. What does it say? It says, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, they'll go to another city, saying, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord. There is a concern for the salvation of others. John Calvin, who, who perhaps may not immediately be associated in our minds with a zeal for personal witness and a concern for evangelism, which would be a great mistake, actually said in his commentary on this passage, he says, we hence learn that faith then only produces its legitimate fruit when zeal is kindled to gather the strain, or when zeal is kindled, so that everyone strives to increase the kingdom of God and to gather the straying that the church may be filled. For when anyone consults his own private benefit and has no care for others, he first betrays his own humanity, or he he betrays most clearly his own inhumanity, and where there is no love, 
The Spirit of God does not rule there. Besides, true godliness brings with it a concern for the glory of God. It is no wonder, then, that the prophet, when describing true and real conversion, says that each would be solicitous. That means they would care about his brethren so as to stimulate one another. And also that the hearts of all would be kindled with zeal for God, that they should hasten together to celebrate his glory. The results of this restoration involve a real care for others. And in that connection, you see a mutual kind of stimulation that Calvin also speaks of commenting on this passage where it says, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and, and seek the Lord of hosts. Let us consider one another, the New Testament says, to stir one another up to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Let us exhort one another daily, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Mutual encouragement. Mutual exhortation. Mutual praise. Even singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord as a means whereby we stir one another up in the faith are taught in Scripture. Here again is another question for us personally. Is that the kind of friend you are? In your friendship, do you serve? Do you aim to encourage others in the ways of God? With this let us kind of language, whether you use those words or not, that's not important. But do they see by your example, by your interest, by your practice, by your care for them? That spiritual things are of great importance to you. And you care for them as well. You hear also a kind of personal resolve expressed here in verse 21. It says, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Now we might say that's involved in the let us part of it. But there is a special emphasis placed upon here. The speaker takes initiative and expresses his own personal commitment and resolve to these things. And he wants others to join them. But whether they do or not, that's what he's going to do. Is that the kind of husband you are to you men? Is that the kind of father you are? Setting an example by your zeal and your care for these things? Is that the kind of boyfriend you have to the young ladies? Is that the kind of husband you want who has these priorities that govern his life? Eagerness to seek and to pray to the Lord as a result of spiritual restoration. And then in this connection we read that others are drawn to God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Great numbers are drawn to God. In this description, literally, there is a 10 to 1 ratio of Jew to Gentile. Now, that's figurative, uh, symbolic number. And we're not to speculate or to draw conclusions. This passage doesn't mean that all people from nations, or it doesn't mean that half of them or a quarter of them will, will come. 
If any, anything, the language of ten is associated with a tithe, isn't it? The first fruits. A part for the whole. But more importantly, it's a number of completeness. And the point here is that very many will, will come. Very many will be drawn to God through the testimony of the church. And in this context, it's, it's clear that, uh, converts from the nations will greatly outnumber the Jews, the original people to whom God revealed himself because he revealed himself to them with a purpose for the world. And they will serve that purpose. This is the spirit, the, the fruit, the result of spiritual re- uh, restoration. In a few moments, we're going to sing from uh, Psalm 67, which itself involves a, a summons to joy, but it's a prayer for revival. As it says, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Revive us, O God. Show mercy to us so that your name may be known among the nations. Revive me, O God, so that my life bears powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel where I live, that I might be a light to others. We want God with us to become evident in our lives. We can't convert anyone by our holiness, by our spirituality. But Christ calls us to shine as lights in this world. And one of the reasons that he spells out in the Sermon on the Mount is that uh, by our good works, others might be, others might glorify God. The Catechism alludes to that also in terms of the, the reason for good works is that our neighbor might be one to Christ. This is the great work of God that's described here. In verse 23, it's really a description, when you think about, of deeply rooted prejudices and animosity being removed. Because there was a deep prejudice against the Jews. That was certainly the case in the days of Zechariah and Haggai and Nehemiah and Ezra. They were vilified people. They were hated and persecuted. And that's kind of been the story of Israel. And that increasingly is the story of the Christian church. Now, sadly, both Israel and the Christian church sometimes provide excuses for the world to vilify the church because of inconsistency or pride or, in effect, a denial of what we ought to believe and how we ought to live. But in any case... In the best case scenario, it's true that people are drawn to the Christian church only when prejudices and blindness is removed. And certainly that is the case in our day, where Christians are associated with bigotry and narrowness and hatred. But in a way, this text really describes the removal of, of prejudice And in place of that is a kind of teachableness where the Gentiles would realize, well, these Jews, they have something that I don't have. These Christians actually have something that I don't have. And I want it. And I really want to hear what they have to say. 
I really need to be taught by them. This describes a willingness, you might say, to follow old paths. So contrary to the spirit of our age, people are not interested in ancient religion. People aren't interested in the history of revelation. They want something immediately accessible to them in their felt need now. But when the Spirit of God moves and works in people's hearts, they become interested in this big book. They become interested in what the Christian church has taught and believed down through the centuries. They become humbled and teachable. We heard the message. That's the testimony here. We have heard that God is with you. We believe that you have the truth. The truth about God, and we want to know it. May we come with you? Will you teach us? That's really what's described here, isn't it? We can't produce such a radical change in the hearts of people, but God can. Let's be ready for it. Let's be on the lookout. Let's show a readiness to teach, to explain, to instruct in humility the wonder of the good news of Jesus Christ. Trusting in the Holy Spirit to draw people whom he prepares, in whose hearts he works, to bring them to faith. Realize this treasure that we have to share and realize our calling to be ready to share it to exhibit it by our lives in the knowledge that God works the same today as he always had. It's through a living church and it's gospel preaching and testimony that he carries out his work and will for a lost and desperate and dying world. Amen.